Hey everybody, welcome back to the Now It's Dark movie podcast here with Mike. And this is Tim, and uh, it's been a while since our first episode on Twin Peaks. We talked about Twin Peaks The Returns Season 3, uh, but we're back and we wanted to do something that kind of was a continuation of what we were doing before and hopefully something that our audience, uh, who are you know mostly Twin Peaks fans, would be interested in. Now, last time we examined the new season of Twin Peaks and kind of looked at how it was about the decay of rural America and mm-hmm. nostalgia for the past. And I think today we're going to take a look at a set of films that are very much about the future. And that would be Blade Runner, 1982, the original Blade Runner, and the follow-up to that from last year, Blade Runner 2049. There will be massive spoilers here, so make sure that you've watched Blade Runner, the original, and Blade Runner 2049 before listening to the rest of this. And if you haven't, bookmark it and come back to it later. Yeah, both views of the future, though not necessarily optimistic ones. No, quite dark. And, um, you know, kind of in the vein of Twin Peaks, they take a a, a critical, quite, they're not afraid to be dark uh, and dystopian in many ways. Um, it, It is funny because... You know, we're recording this right now at night. It's it's a very rainy evening. Yeah, quite um, appropriate. Quite appropriate, because we are in uh, Busan in South Korea, and this kind of weather instantly kind of brings to mind the look of Blade Runner. And anytime you mention that, uh, it's it's an instant shorthand, I think, for a lot of people. Just anytime you mention the Blade Runner look, you think about neon-drenched sidewalks, uh, kind of just this you know, maze-like urban sprawl. Mm-hmm. Um, huge skyscrapers. Huge yeah. skyscrapers, but just layers of buildings and structures yeah. on top of each and other. And that's really just like Korea. That's it's where we live very right much now. like Korea. Neon lights on top of neon lights. Also ubiquitous advertising. Yeah. You know, just like LEDs yeah. flashing all, you know, different sorts of advertisements. Well, well, there you go. You and I just live in the world of Blade Runner right now. Pretty much. Yeah. <laughs> it really does feel like that. Yeah. Um, and also just like the the mix of old and new. Mm-hmm. Like there's a lot of old kind of decaying architecture that's been retrofitted or is sitting next to, you know, ultra modern technology. And all of these things really bring to mind this world and this look. I think it is the aesthetic of the original Blade Runner, uh, specifically the production design, which is kind of the movie's most enduring legacy, mm-hmm. I would say. Yeah. Because if you take a look at the novel uh, by Philip K. Dick, Do Androids Dream of Electric Sheep, it's very much about the you know examining the difference between the human and the android, um, whether empathy can exist mm-hmm. in an android being. Right. Uh, and um, you know the movie I think has endured because it does take a look at those themes, but it it builds on top of it by creating an aesthetic to to match this sort of uh, you know future looking. Uh, vision. Yeah, it really is a very cinematic experience. Yeah. You know, it really translates very well from the novel to the silver screen. Absolutely. And it's it's been so influential as well, like in the cyberpunk genre that mm-hmm. emerged in the 80s with William Gibson and others, uh, Japanese anime, uh, Akira, you know, um, and just a lot of science fiction films. I mean, just you cannot look at The Matrix without seeing so many things that come from Blade Runner. Mm-hmm. And not only movies, you look at video games. I mean, the whole world of the Bioshock video games, right, you know, right. the underwater city. It just looks exactly like Blade Runner, right. but it's just underwater. Yeah, it has a, a certain mix of old and new that's very much reminiscent of Blade Runner. 
it should be noted too that Blade Runner was not, you know, totally original. It it drew from other uh, sources as well, mm-hmm. um, like a French comic book, which roughly translates to heavy metal. Yeah, um, was influential in in uh, you know creating this sort of look. Um, but the movie was was clearly groundbreaking and influential. And it was interesting if we take a look at Blade Runner. 1982, the original version, Ridley Scott himself was trained as an art designer, and he was also a veteran commercial director. He directed tons of commercials up until that point. So he was really kind of immersed in cutting-edge 80s aesthetics. He knew what was what was in vogue and everything and in, and in fashion. And he knew what to tell people, what he wanted and what he didn't want. Mm-hmm. He worked really closely with the production designer on Blade Runner, Lawrence Paul, and he actually hired a futurist as well by the name of Sid Mead, who kind of just, you know, drew all of these sketches to kind of start off the process of envisioning and conceptualizing this world. Right. And, you know, the the thing that I really appreciate about the look of Blade Runner is that if you look at movies like, you know, Star Wars, for instance, uh, let's take a look at the prequels. Coruscant doesn't really look anything like modern society Mm -hmm. but if you look at Blade Runner it takes place in the future and there are ships flying but at the same time there are still uh, rain soaked sidewalks and people just kind of getting from one place to another and people going to work and it's still uh, it's still very much familiar but also futuristic and actually like a lot of that familiarity was due entirely to accident Mm -hmm. uh, because the the actual lot that they were designing these sets on had all these existing structures and buildings on it. So they kind of had to retrofit that architecture with these futuristic elements to make it look like it was, you know, Mm. set in the future. Right, right. And um, as well, the ideas and concepts that they had for this uh, were able to only reach their full development because there was an actor's strike at that time, Mm -hmm. which bought them time. It gave them like nine and a half months of production work Mm. on this, and pre-production work, I should say. Um, which really allowed them to kind of complete their vision. And I think also the set itself was kind of small, or the lot itself, sorry. So the sets had to be constantly changed and, and uh, rearranged to make it look like they were different locations. Uh-huh. Uh, but, I mean, you take a look at the miniature work, like these these cool analog props... Um, everything just comes together so amazing. The lighting as well. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, it just that's one of the things that it, it's a futuristic landscape, and it's it's miniatures. It still kind of has that look that it still kind of has that look of I can reach out and touch everything that's there. It's very tactile. It's very tactile. And the problem that I have with a lot of movies today is that um, it's 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 they're all so glossy. A lot of the special effects, it's almost like you're watching an animation. Right. 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 So like it might be really high def and everything, but uh, just it doesn't really feel real. Like I, it's so obvious sometimes that the actors that you're watching aren't standing in a real space. Yeah, it's so true. Um, and I think one of the interesting things about what Blade Runner did, it was one of the first big science fi- fiction films that took high technology to the street level. Yeah. You know, um, like technology is everywhere in this movie. You, you see... Uh, the Tyrell Corporation. It's just this gleaming, you know... It's this giant pyramid, pyramid. in the middle of a city. Yeah. yeah. But then you also go down to the street levels, and it's just saturated with technology. Mm-hmm. Um, it really does the, explore the idea of just technology taking over almost every aspect of your life and being part of every element uh, and level of society. Um, but I think by doing that, it had to deal with a, a bunch of questions about how technology 
was reshaping society. Yeah. Because, I mean, if you take a look at an earlier sci-fi film like uh, Metropolis. Right. 1927. Mm-hmm. I love that movie. I love it, too. It's Fritz Lang. It's it's a real landmark. Mm-hmm. Um, but it portrays a world in which technology is kind of, uh, it's it's it structures society, but it's really only cooked up in these kind of ivory towers mm-hmm. by these centralized planners. Yeah, the it's a technology is for the elite. Right. You know, and they're the people who are controlling the machines, and then you poor, you poor suckers are working these machines. Right. Yeah. It, it to the uh, extent that it affects the average person, it's just as a controlling, yeah. managing sort of uh, thing. Right. So in that sense, uh, there's a real clear division between those who control technology and the masses. Yeah. And so uh, social divisions are, are fairly simplified, I think. If you give the masses the technology, or at least you know access to a lot of technology, obviously not all of it, the right. rich still control the, the biggest and the best. Yeah. But if you give the masses access to, to a lot of powerful technology, it totally restructures how society functions. Mm-hmm. You know, and um, in Blade Runner, there really are no masses. Mm-hmm. I mean, the, the masses that rise up and, and uh, rebel in Metropolis are nowhere to be found in Blade Runner. Yeah, everyone's so downtrodden. It's so downtrodden, divided, alienated. Yeah. Um, not only from... Hiding in the shadows, because there are so many... Like, it's just so gloomy and, and dark on the street. It right. doesn't really... There's nothing really that matches the um, the colorful neon advertisements that are basically in the sky, because the buildings are so tall. Right. And nothing really quite captures the the same gleam of the the Pyramid Tyrell Corporation. Yeah, it's still very much a, a world divided by class, mm-hmm. but it's also a world where technology has infused the the lower stratas of society. Yeah, um, and I think in order to kind of represent the social reality that went along with this look, they had to bring in film noir to do it. Because that was a genre that was based around social alienation, mm-hmm. um, suspicion, paranoia, where you just had all these individuals kind of uh, not able to trust each other, um, kind of uh, really divided up from once one another and, and uh, questioning each other's motives. And in doing and in, in bringing that genre in, I think it allowed them to kind of deal with the social reality that this look implied. Mm-hmm. And it also, you know, allowed them to, to mix the look of the film noir type look, uh, the high contrast look with, you know, all this amazing technology and all these amazing sets. Right. I mean, because I think you maybe most people might associate film noir with movies maybe from like the 40s or something. Right. Right. Um, and here you have a film noir movie that's also a science fiction and set in the future. Right. You know, that's what made it so unique at the time. And the original the original cut also had it had the sort of classic style narration. That uh, voiceover that was kind of ordered by the studios and tacked yeah. on at the final minute just to right. kind of explain things. Mm-hmm. But very noirish. Yeah, very noirish. Yeah. Regardless of whether you like the voiceover or not, I mean, that that is very noir right there. Oh, yeah. Yeah. So what you get out of all this, I think, is this kind of hodgepodge of, of different individuals and groups. Um, there's, you know, there's elements of multiculturalism there. There's a lot of characters from from different parts of the world, but they don't really interact. And 
to the extent that they do, it's it's mostly when they have to buy things from each other or, or when they're doing work. Mm-hmm. You know, it's really determined by capitalism. Um, Everyone else just kind of keeps to themselves for the yeah, most part. Yeah, they really do. I mean, yeah. Rick Deckard, uh, the main character, seemingly has no friends. Yeah. You know, there's never a moment where he just kind of goes amongst his people and kind of hangs <laughs> out or has fun or, or relaxes. Um, and... I think not only the characters alienated from each other, but they're also kind of alienated from themselves. Right. Especially in the case of Deckard and Rachel. Mm-hmm. Like, they don't know who they are. Yeah. Rachel is shocked to find out that she's a replicant. Mm-hmm. Uh, Rick Deckard is troubled the whole film, as kind of is the audience, by the question of whether he's a replicant. Yeah, and I think that's a debate that still goes on today. Very much so. Yeah. Because, uh, you know, with the new film, which we'll get to in a bit, Denny Villeneuve has stated that uh, he does not think that that Rick Deckard was a replicant, or he kind of made the film with the understanding that he wasn't. Okay. Well, I'm going to jump back to that point when we get to 2049. Okay. Yeah. So I think overall, Blade Runner is kind of this fantasy of the future based on the kind of anxieties and concerns of the 80s as well as the the kind of fashion and trends of the 80s. And even the score by Vangelis has kind of come to resemble the world in which we live. Because, I mean, to me, when I first saw the movie in, in probably the late 90s, okay, um, the score really struck me as kind of something I would put on my, my headphones or when I'm walking around a really busy, noisy city just to kind of drown out everything. Yeah. You know, this this kind of beautiful ambient score, um, it kind of came to resemble my own experience living in a city, mm-hmm. you know? So I think the film was really prescient in that sense. Yeah, and oh, about the, the music, I mean, it's, it's kind of, it's synth, which was really big in the 80s, mm-hmm. but it does kind of add to this kind of um, almost sort of futuristic kind of sound. Oh, you know what most I mean? definitely, yeah. And, you know, I think it's kind of like, if you imagine, um, if you imagine the score for Taxi Driver with that, um, with that saxophone, yeah, it's kind of like imagine, imagine that score, but with some sort of futuristic machine, right, playing it instead. It's not, it's not a saxophone. It's more artificial than that, right? You know, and that kind of, it, it, that's again, the music kind of goes to try to create the the atmosphere of a noir movie, yeah, uh, w- b- while using while using the future in science fiction as its core. It's a weird mix of kind of a, a classical noir-type score mm-hmm. with ambient music that yeah. was kind of pioneered by Brian Eno and people like that. Mm-hmm. Um, an incredible blending of different genres and different elements. Yeah. But, I mean, the, the, the aesthetic has, has remained uh, so important until this day. Which really made me curious about Blade Runner 2049, how it would handle this this look, which was just such a part of our you know modern cinematic vocabulary. Um, and I think in almost every respect, uh, Denis Villeneuve's Blade Runner 2049 kind of stays true to the look and feel of its predecessor. Yeah, I think I think he did well. I think he did well with 2049. I told you before, one of my biggest worries for 2049 was that it was going to be. Um, modernized, quote-unquote, I suppose you could say, because I think if Blade Runner were to come out today for the first time, it mm-hmm. would have just been this loud, noisy explosion fest, because you think about it. Today, 2018, a movie about someone searching for four robots. It's not going to be a quiet, thoughtful film noir mystery, right? Yeah. Probably not. 
So I was a little bit concerned that maybe he was going to go that route, and I'm glad he didn't. No, I think the the Blade Runner kind of uh, legacy um, instantly allowed him to make something more contemplative mm-hmm. and philosophical in nature. It's it's a very existential sort of film, and uh, I think the people involved in it were smart to allow that sort of thing to continue. Yeah, um, and they they brought a lot of people who were involved in the original film back. I mean, the screenwriters, um, Sid Mead was involved, the futurist who was involved in the original yeah. was involved uh, in this in pre-production. Uh, Ridley Scott obviously had uh, so, some inputs. Um, the production designer, Dennis Gassner, um, had actually worked on the original. He was a consultant who uh, kind of provided Ridley Scott some some insight on how to do the neon lighting. Because mm-hmm. he had done a movie called One from the Heart, made by Francis Ford Coppola, which was just like this, this you know, neon kind of uh, jungle, uh, this recreation of Las Vegas. And uh, so he kind of was influential in the, the look of the original. And it was cool that we, he was kind of brought on board to, to provide some continuity, I think, with the original. So you said that he brought back the, the futurist, Sid Mead. Mm-hmm. Um, so, I mean, it's kind of like he's a futurist. He's working with... You know, he's working with what he's got in the real world, and he's also kind of trying to think up of the future of this world. Yeah, because thirty years have passed. Yeah, thirty since, years have passed since the original. It's twenty. Yeah, it's twenty nineteen in the original Blade Runner. Now it's twenty forty nine here. Right. And so the world is very similar in that there are still skyscrapers and neon lights and everything, and it's still raining a lot. But uh, a lot has changed in thirty years. Absolutely, and I think one of the biggest things is the environmental aspect. I mean, there's kind of there's a suggestion that there's been an environmental collapse. Mm-hmm. And so one one big indicator of this is that in the original, you just see rain almost all the time yeah. throughout the film. It's, it's just a hallmark of the film's look. Yeah, in Both this one, films, really. Well, in this one, you really see a lot of snow. Mm-hmm. Oh, that's right. Yeah, snow you see in it at LA the end. Is, yeah. I mean, when you think about it, it's quite a striking thing. Mm-hmm. And uh, Denis Villeneuve has said that um, for him, that was a huge kind of entry point into the film. Because he was born in a small town in Quebec, and so snow was something that he kind of related to more than than rain. Than rain, right? And uh, so it provided him kind of this this familiarity with the look that he was able to kind of latch onto and and feel like he could kind of alter the film or 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 kind of evolve the look of the film in a way that I think makes a lot of sense. Mm-hmm. Um, as well, uh, I think there's a massive seawall kind of on the outskirts of L.A. that's meant to prevent flooding uh, from the rising sea levels. And there are other aspects as well that, that you kind of pick up in terms of just environmental damage and, and collapse. Um, I also think that Roger Deakins' photography is a lot more expansive than the original. Mm-hmm. There's, there's so many more wide shots. Yeah. Uh, cityscapes, but also landscapes. Yeah. And there, there is a lot more, a lot more going on. Um, you know, that could be even technological advancements in just making, making movies. You know, because I know they did use miniatures uh, for twenty forty nine as well. I think they right. used what a workshop. Yeah. Um, but you know, they are mixing it with uh, CGI as well. Yeah, a little bit. They yeah. didn't use a ton. I, I think. One but of they, the... they, they, I think they achieved that perfect mix. You know what I mean? Yeah. Because I, you know, that's how you're supposed to use CGI. I think is uh, mixing it with with uh, with practical effects to enhance the practical effects that you have. Really, as a supplement. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And as not a, a driving force. Right, and I think that this movie did that very well. 
I agree. And I, I think one of the big things, too, is they had access to, you know, a much bigger uh, uh, studio mm-hmm. lot yeah. to shoot on. I mean, I'm sure it had a much higher budget than the original Blade Runner. Absolutely. Right? The casino where Rick Deckard is is in hiding yeah, with yeah. the Korean letters, which is somewhat ironic because Korean uh, in in Korea gambling is is banned yeah, for that's right. uh, Koreans. But anyways, it really opens up. It's it, it's part of the sequence when they kind of venture beyond the city limits of L.A. and kind of expand the world of Blade Runner. Yeah, right. Because you get to go out kind of in the um, like the the outskirts. Yeah, right. I mean, you get to see Las Vegas. You get to leave Los Angeles and you go into Las Vegas where there's been a dirty bomb um, and, you know, just these fabulous shots of all these crumbled statues and everything and uh, a real desert landscape. You go from this this towering metropolis to this abandoned desert. This, you know, prominent yellow in the, yeah. in the atmosphere, yeah. this kind of yellow haze. Mm-hmm. Just brilliant Roger Deakins photography. Yeah. It's also worth mentioning, uh, you know, not only is it more expansive, but I think the interiors, um, particularly the uh, headquarters of the Wallace Corporation, is much more, I would say, dynamic in some ways. Um, Roger Deakins lights it in such a way so it looks like there's just this kind of water reflection all yeah. around. And it's photographically, I think, on par with the original. Um, in some areas, it might be slightly less epic mm-hmm. uh, but in other areas it's it's more epic and and interesting but well, part of that might be because you know it's the second blade runner i think it's impossible for it not to be in some parts an homage movie you know what i mean well this gets into what i think might be some of the problems with blade runner 2049 because mm-hmm. when i saw it and i know we talked about this we we saw it together um there was something about it that just felt off and mm-hmm. I've been wrestling with that question ever since I've seen it. Okay. And kind of going back and forth in my mind. Um, but I'll just kind of think out loud here. Okay. Um, with a qu- couple of concerns I kind of had. Um, I think, in a way, the expansiveness of the second film does kind of take away from the kind of noirish, uh, I'll say romantic alienation of the first one. Okay. Um, there's this kind of comfortably hermetic feel to the first film mm-hmm. um deckard's home uh most of the interior spaces they seem to be kind of comfortably closed off yeah they're really cramped all the spaces are really small yeah, yeah. um but it does give it this sense of like a place of refuge in a, mm-hmm. at least in deckard's home um has the feel of a place that's been left behind or abandoned by all the people going to the off-world colony. And uh, for me, there's something kind of, it's more noirish uh, because of that. And I think because the the second film is more focused on kind of, you know, traversing frontiers and, and traveling with that spinner, it has more of a sci-fi feel to it. Okay. Right, um, so you think it, it kind of goes a little bit too far away from the film noir and more into a general sci-fi? Well, I think both films have have an interesting mix of both. Right. I just prefer the first ones. Right. Okay, so I see what you mean. So the first one is a mix, of course, but with leaning a little bit more towards film noir. And the second one, again, it's a mix, but it's more sci-fi. I would say so. Yeah, that that's one thing that's kind of come to my mind. Mm-hmm. 
I think the the spaces are are less full of suspicion and and alienation and a little bit more just outrightly hostile. Mm-hmm. Um, for example, when he's you know going to the orphanage, people there are just outwardly hostile yeah. towards him. Um, yeah, there's none of the kind of noirish. It, it's like visiting a, a hostile planet or something. That's the feeling that it gave me. Yeah, I think part of also part of what makes the first one feel a bit more like a noir is that um, they are kind of just stuck in that one city the whole time. Yes. You know, that. so maybe if you expand it, if you make it too big, it's not really, it's not really a noir anymore. It's kind of more of an epic in that sense. Yeah, I think more of a sci-fi film. Yeah, yeah, as you said. I think uh, more consequential to the success of Blade Runner 2049 is the the backstory, the series of mini films that they commissioned yeah. prior to the release of this to kind of fill in what happened over these 30 years. And it kind of answers a question which I think the production designers had, which is this. If you are trying to maintain continuity with the original film, how do you deal with the fact that analog tech has kind of declined in favor of digital? Mm-hmm. And their answer to this was to make this kind of plot device where digital records were wiped out mm-hmm. by a terrorist attack, which forced a lot of uh, you know corporations and companies to resort to analog record taking. Yeah, in order to make up for it, that allows them to bring back all of these cool like analog devices. Yeah, you know there are uh, giant signs advertising for Atari. Yeah, you know they yeah. they actually kept it. They didn't go the Sony route or anything like that. They they kept the same ads from thirty years ago. Right. Yeah. And it allows them to kind of keep all of this legacy tech from the the first film, or at least elements of it. Um, I think though with with that plot device, I mean, it is cool to see this analog tech mixed with digital, um, but it kind of prevents them from going all the way and dealing with how social reality has changed. Because, I mean, the first film was really imagining how social reality would change with all of this, you know, uh, these develop futuristic developments. Mm-hmm. And the second film, I think, really could have dealt with the consequences of digital technology better. Yeah. And, I mean, I think this is one of the big problems of films today. How do you portray human relations that take place largely via text messaging mm-hmm. or communication that is largely non-physical or largely inactive? People on their phones communicating and not really moving or doing anything. Right. And how do you do that in a way which, consistent with the Blade Runner world, where you don't, like, say, Tron, for example, yeah. go into this virtual thing and portray it in a in a imaginative sense. Well, you know, in the 2049, they have him in his, his digital fake holographic girlfriend. Joy. Joy, yeah. Yeah, that's one solution to that, Yeah, I think. And, and then there's the, the neon sign that actually kind of, it's, that's, you know, that's kind of like augmented reality, which is right. becoming more and more featured in today's world. That advertisement turns around right towards K and just actually comes up to him. Right. Yeah. And that's, I think, the the best example of them trying to deal with that. But there's something kind of unsatisfying about it, I think. Like, it's it's dealing with it in a way that's, that doesn't feel too different from today's world. Mm-hmm. Um, whereas I think the first one was, was, you know, a leap ahead. Yeah. Um, it was already presuming this social reality that didn't quite exist yet, where this is just kind of like, 
working through something that kind of is already existing right now. Well, that's the thing about science fiction, though, is that science fiction often inspires and innovates technologies that don't that don't exist at the time. Right. And so maybe technology has already caught up or is catching up quicker than expected to the world of Blade Runner. Yeah, and that's fine. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and in a sense, it's inescapable mm-hmm. that a science fiction film is, is going to suffer from those you know potential problems. Yeah. I just wish Blade Runner 2049 had taken that extra leap in trying to imagine, uh, perhaps in a more satisfying way, what this would do to society. Something that they could have done, because if 1982's Blade Runner was all analog, they could have maybe tried to mimic the digital revolution that occurred here. Mm-hmm. You know, because look at where the world is now in 2018 compared to 1982. Right. You know, the technology is all different. If they had said, well, in about, uh, in about 2026... You know, that's when their equivalent of the Internet or something happened, whatever the Blade Runner equivalent of that revolutionary technology could have been. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, that's to be decided. Uh, but then how how could that have affected life 30 years after that? Exactly. That's could, exactly what I'm, yeah. I wish they would have done. Okay, so you wanted to see the big jump that existed between 1982 real life and now. Yeah, yeah. Um, because it would have, it is one of the big problems in filmmaking. Mm-hmm. Like, if you're making a film, how do you show people texting and not make it boring? Right, 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 right. And, you know, put together all of the forms of digital communication that we have and digital interfacing. Yeah. And try to imagine how to portray that in a way that doesn't involve just, like, cheap gimmicks. Yeah. And no one, as far as I know, has been able to really figure that out in the context of sci-fi. Mm-hmm. And I, it would have been really amazing to see them try to do that. Because I think that would have been in keeping with the, you know, the sense of discovery that the first one had. In terms of the the first and the second movies, the first movie especially had large themes of artificiality in them. Mm-hmm. You know, there were, you know, so much of the the light that you see in the cities is artificial light. It's uh, it's neon lighting, and um, so many things like. Uh, the animals. None of the animals are real. You've got replicants running around. They right. look human. They're not human. Um, artificiality and what is real and what is not. Did you think that that theme carried over well into the second one? And if not, did it did it need to? Well, it's a challenge because the original had a whole novel that mm-hmm. kind of had worked out these themes, so they didn't have to really deal with them as head on. Mm-hmm. Uh, they could just kind of, you know, explore them. Uh, but they didn't have to work through the deep philosophical consequences because Philip K. Dick had kind of already done that. Yeah, right. Now, it's cool that they had the same screenwriters uh, on the new film, but I found it interesting that they did kind of introduce these these background elements that you know reintroduce this problem in a new way. Uh, for example, you notice a lot of characters have fake fur. Yeah. You know, like Ryan Gosling's character has this fur lining on his coat. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's right. And... Um, that was kind of an interesting way. They, they never allude to it, yeah. as far as I know. But it kind of shows that, you know, synthetic animals um, and, you know, sy- synthetic life is still very much a concern of people today. It's even been integrated into fashion. Right. Um, I found that interesting. Yeah, that's right, because we already have fake furs, but now this is real furs of fake animals? I guess so. Yeah. Yeah. It's, yeah. Uh, 
it's interesting to think through what that actually is. Yeah. The last point I wanted to get to, though, uh, because I said I would jump back into this when we did 2049. Denis Villeneuve said that he was making this movie from the point that Rick Deckard wasn't a replicant, right? Um, Ridley Scott has come out and basically said that Rick Deckard is a replicant. Yeah. Denis Villeneuve is kind of saying, like, I don't really want to answer the question. I want to keep right. the question alive. But then in addition to the fake animals, you've got replicants, as I said before, who look human, feel human, act human, right? They're just, the only problem is, is that they're not human. And, you know, I don't want to get too much into it of whether or not Rick Deckard is a replicant. I don't really care at the end. But the interesting thing is, is that if you read about the making of this movie, the opening scene of 2049, where you find out that Ryan Gosling's character, Kay, is a replicant, that was meant for the original Blade Runner. Right. That was storyboarded for the original Blade Runner. And that kind of speaks to the the realistic artificiality of everything that exists in the world of Blade Runners that you can't even tell. Realistic artificiality is an interesting turn of phrase, <laughs> yeah. but I like well, it. Well, that's the thing. I mean, uh, they're chasing these replicants, and the, sometimes the replicants don't even know that they're robots. Yeah. It really, uh, there's an evolution, I think, in, in the question, or how they handle the question of artificiality from the first film to the second film. Because mm-hmm. in the first film, it's an existential crisis, you know, if you're artificial, an android, or if you're not. That is the existential crisis of the film. Yeah. That's what, you know, shatters Rachel's world. That's what has the potential to shatter Rick Deckard's world. In the next film, it's taken from the start that he's artificial. Mm -hmm. They make a kind of evolution from there to say, well, then what does that mean? And what am I capable of? Yeah. And the existential question, I think, that Kay faces is... What am I really capable of? Right. Or does it matter at all if I'm not human? And I think he kind of realizes that it isn't, but it's a, you know, brutally harsh awakening because he he lives this, you know, he goes through this journey where he thinks that he might be the first child of a human and a replicant coupling. Mm-hmm. And he believes he's kind of this chosen one. Yeah only to find out at the end that that was kind of a ruse yeah. to kind of you know, prod him into action and keep him going. Um, at the end, I think he realizes it doesn't matter, but it's a very heartbreaking realization for him. Yeah. But I think the fact that you use heartbreaking with an android means the question of you know, android empathy and emotion has basically been settled. They have them. Yeah. It's, not, it's a non-issue anymore. Right. And at this point, is he a, a replicant? Is he human? Does it even matter? And that's why I think some people got on, you know, Denis Villeneuve for not answering that question mm-hmm. or not going with the version that Ridley Scott had had already stated. But I think it's great that he keeps it alive because, in a sense, it, it doesn't matter anymore. That burning question from the original is is interesting, but it's not so important anymore. Tim, thanks very much for joining me this rainy evening. Yeah, it was great to uh, to be here and, and talk to you uh, about Blade Runner. It's been a, a favorite of mine for quite a long time, and I'm really interested to see whether the new Blade Runner will be like the original in terms of you know being a box office failure, quote mm-hmm. unquote, at the beginning, and then kind of becoming more popular later. I hope so, as I enjoyed it, and I'd like to see good movies keep being made. Absolutely. Yeah. All right, and listeners, thanks very much for being here. Um, hopefully, we'll be back in a shorter time than before. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, (laughs) Stay tuned for more. We will be more consistent with this. 
This is the Now It's Dark movie podcast. You can find us on YouTube at Now It's Dark and almost anywhere where podcasts are found. And be sure to uh, give us a like and subscribe if you enjoyed this so you can stay tuned for more content. If there's anything you'd like to talk about uh, with regards to Blade Runner or anything you'd like us to focus on in the future, leave us a comment below. Thank you.